Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs in Washington, D.C. I'm Emily Tampkin, Senior Editor, U.S. in Jerusalem. I'm Anusha Kellyan, Britain Editor in London. It's Thursday, the 14th of July. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister. This week, we're looking at the Tory leadership candidates' foreign policy platforms. Who stands out and what might it mean for British support for the war in Ukraine? Then we turn to the fallout from the assassination of former Japanese Prime Minister Abe Shinzo. In the midst of an election, which is the root of democracy, an act of cowardly barbarism has stolen Prime Minister Abe's life. It is absolutely unallowable and I once again condemn it with the strongest words. We also take a listener question on Biden's visit to the Middle East. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. As you heard at the top there, I am not in Washington, D.C. this week. And my visit here coincides with Biden's. So we will get into that a little bit later. But first, it is my great, great pleasure to introduce to this podcast, making her World Review debut, although she is no stranger to the New Statesman um, extended podcast universe and is, in fact, like, arguably its star. Anoush, thank you so much for being here today. Yay. Yay, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited. It's the crossover event we've all been waiting for. It's our, our, our most ambitious crossover event yet. I can barely say it. I'm so excited. Okay, here we go. <laughs> British Prime Minister Boris Johnson finally agreed to resign last week after one scandal he was not able to shake. So he will be replaced by a new candidate. But who are the new candidates to be leader of the Conservative Party? and eventually Prime Minister? And what are their foreign policy platforms? All right, Anoush, who are the names that our listeners need to know? And what, if anything, about what they're saying on foreign policy? You know, I think much of what they're saying is going to be tailored 
to a domestic audience and about domestic policy. But but what, if anything, about their foreign policy stands out? Absolutely. Yeah. So foreign policy hasn't really come into the debate properly so far. They are still in the MPs rounds, so they're very much pitching their platforms to their fellow Tory MPs. And it's revolved a lot about around domestic policy, particularly domestic policy that preoccupies conservative MPs. So namely tax cuts. Um, but I'll take you through the front runners. There is actually a vote happening just after we come off this recording. So I won't go through sort of some of the lower down candidates who may not get the required 30 votes in this first round, just in case they become irrelevant by the time your your listeners are listening to this. So the front runner by far is Rishi Sunak, the former chancellor. He stood by Boris Johnson's side in government, particularly during the pandemic, and made a name for himself by uh, introducing that emergency support to help people through. And he is pitching himself very much on a sort of fiscal conservative platform saying we need to get inflation under control. We need to balance the books before we can cut taxes. Um, in terms of foreign policy, he has this record of, of a lot of funding to Ukraine, which the British government has used to distinguish itself in Europe. So over £2.3 billion to Ukraine in the form of military support. And he wants to maintain current defence spending levels, stick to that 2% target, which he sees as a floor rather than a ceiling. In terms of Brexit, he he did campaign to leave and he is, you know, he's backing that Northern Ireland Protocol bill, which would uh, give the UK powers to override the protocol, very com- controversial in the EU. He's also said all options are on the table when asked if the UK would withdraw from the European Convention on Human Rights, which is a sort of a big topic at the moment because it was European Court of Human Rights judges in Strasbourg that blocked these deportations of asylum seekers to Rwanda, which is one of the government's more controversial policies. But that's really all we've had from him on foreign policy. And then sort of second in the running is Penny Morden, a trade minister, and she's actually served as International Development Secretary and she was briefly Defence Secretary under Theresa May, although um, it hardly counts. I think it was only a, a few months. But she's, you know, she's quite big on foreign policy. She's in the Navy Reserve, so she's got this military background. She wants to increase defence spending. Um, she's consistently voted for sort of military force. She, you know, is also seems to be backing this Northern Ireland Protocol bill. And also she's a big proponent of these state trade deals that the UK has been pursuing with individual US states. So I don't know if you saw, but the UK signed its first US state level agreement with Indiana in May. And the idea is to sign up to a lot of these deals to try and sort of work our way gradually towards a UK-US trade deal. It just shows how hard that's proving and sort of what a false promise it was of, of Brexit. And then you have um, Liz Truss, who is the foreign secretary. So really, uh, foreign affairs should be a bigger part of these debates. She did campaign for Remain, but she's sort of cast herself as a diehard Brexiteer. She actually introduced that Northern Ireland Protocol bill. She's known for signing trade deals with Japan, New Zealand and Australia sort of post-Brexit. And she's been quite hawkish on, on the Russian invasion so, you know, she's taken a tough line on that and she wants to spend more on defence and security. But really, you know, when Tory candidates say they want to spend more on defence, that's what they all say in this round of the com- contest because it's such a, it's such a big deal to, to their fellow MPs and also to, to the membership who get to, to vote on the final two. And then lastly, I'd say the fourth sort of person who we definitely know is likely to get through to the next round, Tom Tugendhat. He's chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. So, that's a group of MPs who scrutinise the work of the Foreign Office and ministers. And he's never actually had a government job, but he's very up on his foreign policy, he was sort of instrumental in, in holding the government to account on that Kabul evacuation. 
He wants to increase defence spending to 3% of GDP, reverse the cuts to the armed forces. Even though he was a Remainer, he's saying that he, he wants to stick by that Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which, you know, potentially could break international law. And he's also co-chair of the very, very Beijing sceptic China Research Group of Tory MPs, which is sort of a pressure group to try and make the government more hawkish on, on China-UK relations. So those are probably the four front runners so far. There are others, Kemi Badenoch, Brexiteer. She's against the net zero target. She's sort of framing her pitch around identity politics issues, some of them imported, you know, from the US on trans rights and things like that. And then there's Suella Braverman, who's actually the attorney general who has said in the past she wants to withdraw from the European Convention on Human Rights. Jeremy Hunt, who was foreign secretary and, you know, is a very experienced minister. He wants to sort of reset the UK's relationship with Europe, but still is backing that Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. And Nadim Sahawi as well, who is the new chancellor, who is the minister best known for sort of pushing that quite successful UK vaccine rollout during the pandemic. But really, you know, they're all saying these things about trying to tear up the Northern Ireland Protocol because they've got a very, very Brexiteer base of Tory members. It's completely skewed towards uh, leave. I think it's upwards of 70% who, who voted leave in that membership. So they've got, even if they were Remainers, they've got to pitch to that group. Similarly, I think they're all sticking by this policy to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda, which has been controversial here and uh, it's obviously been unworkable so far as well. So the reason why they're all sticking with that as well is to try and G up the base. So you, you have to take some of this with a pinch of salt. Well, firstly, I apologize on behalf of my country for sending over these um, noxious culture wars um, that are now consuming <laughs> some of your politics. They've been rightfully received by some of our politicians, I have to say. Yes, yes, <laughs> indeed. So last week on the podcast, we had a question that was basically what would a prime minister who's not Boris Johnson mean for British support for Ukraine and its efforts against Russia's war. And basically what we said is that this is not unique to Boris Johnson, that the next prime minister in all likelihood not abandon Ukraine to Russia, that this was a popular position with the British public and that healthy British democracy was in fact better in the long run for Ukraine. But if we were wrong on that, now is your chance to let our listeners know. <laughs> it's a really good question. And actually, you know, to be fair to Boris Johnson, it was a big focus of his. It has won him plaudits, even among MPs who were putting in letters of no confidence in him. You know, it's one of the main reasons, actually, that they didn't move against him earlier this year mm -hmm. uh, because of his his approach to to the invasion of Ukraine. And, you know, recently near doubling the UK support for Ukraine, sending significant military aid, other supplies. I think the UK is now the largest bilateral humanitarian donor to Ukraine. So it's what he's done has been significant and has, despite all of his flaws, garnered some respect within the party. Similarly, Ben Wallace, his defence secretary, former British army captain, he's impressed his colleagues with his sort of hawkish approach to the invasion as well. In fact, it's said that he's the figure who's more behind the UK's position than perhaps Boris Johnson is. He's actually ruled himself out of the Tory leadership contest, even though it's thought that he would have been the favourite with Tory members, according to, to polling. So I do think there's been some disappointment among Ukrainian commentators in the UK. It's not Johnson the figure going, but perhaps Johnson's focus, which potentially could have been born somewhat out of, a, you know, a cynical need to draw attention away from his his domestic challenges. I mean, he visited Zelensky twice. He went to Kiev twice, the safe, the safe conservative seat of Kiev Central, 
Both um, at very vulnerable times in his leadership. Right. So there could have been there could have been some politicking going on in in that sense. But him and Ben Wallace have have you know spearheaded this this attitude towards Ukraine. And as the cost of living crisis bites here, I mean. We know that energy bills are going to go up stratospherically in October because we have these energy caps. And then when the cap rises, you get this huge, huge leap that's going to happen in October. And you also have, you know, other issues in the state. So I think every single ambulance service has declared a, a critical incident this week. As you get these more pressing domestic issues, I do think that popular backing and sympathy for our response to the invasion of Ukraine might start waning. And that and that will be a challenge for whoever comes in to replace Boris Johnson. Do they want to continue what he's been doing and keep it top of the agenda? Or are they pressured by their own MPs, their own voters and their own constituents into turning attention and more crucially funding to domestic issues? It's wonderful to have you uh, join us on the podcast. I would love to understand to what extent, so I think it strikes me looking at this from the outside that Boris Johnson both both did, you know, genuinely pay a lot of attention to Ukraine. You know, he, he did lead early on this. He did visit, uh, you know, no, no small amount of, of personal physical risk. But it strikes me like he did that when it was sort of when it was easy and politically advantageous to do that. I think it's probably not controversial to say that he, he was not taking any sort of domestic political risk in coming out early in support of Ukraine. And, and if anything, you know, did, did that perhaps help him at a time when he was otherwise beset by domestic political scandals? Would he have stuck with Ukraine as it starts to get more difficult, as there start to be more of a, a, a cost to pay? And as you point out, as you know, energy bills start to spike in the UK, do you think Boris Johnson would have made a real personal difference here? Or would he have done what any other leader might do, which is reassess? in light of those pressing issues? It's really difficult to say, isn't it? I, don't, I mean, he's a, he's a complex character in that he's a people pleaser. And as far as he's a people pleaser, you'd expect him to switch his, his focus onto those domestic issues that people would be clamouring to, to be fixed uh, in the coming months that I just laid out. So you'd, you'd think that might be the direction he would go in. But then again, he has these delusions of, of being a wartime prime minister. Winston Churchill is his hero. He's obsessed with his legacy. So perhaps that would have made him sort of live out the Ukraine fatigue, I think is how he's described it in the past. And, you know, maybe carry on even if it did get tougher and sort of less less salient in the public's imagination as well. So it's it's hard to know which way it would have gone. I imagine, you know, the thing that we know most about his personality is that he's sort of heavy on rhetoric, low on delivery, quite skittish and ultimately selfish. So you would imagine that it might have petered out fairly quickly. But, you know, luckily or perhaps unluckily, we won't we won't find out because he, he won't be around after September the 5th. And are any of the lead contenders making this a central part of their platform, their support for Ukraine? Or how, how are you seeing that play out? They're not at all, actually, so far. The hostings that they do do are for MPs. So they're behind closed doors in rooms in Parliament. So we, you know, we don't get a full picture of exactly what they're saying, but it's very clear from, from briefings that come out of these things and also from their own leadership pitches. You know, some of them have actually done official campaign launches that this is not, not central to their pitch at the moment. That's because they're trying to appeal and pick up support from, from their fellow MPs who are more concerned about the soul of the Conservative Party. You know, what kind of party are they in terms of 
the economy, uh, in terms of cultural issues, how socially liberal are they? And also, you know, are they still committed to that Brexit agenda that so shaped former leadership campaigns? So weirdly, the biggest issue that actually stopped MPs from moving against Boris Johnson in the first place hasn't featured that highly. Nevertheless, you know, Liz Truss is known for her tough talk on Russia. Tom Tugendhat as well. You know, he's been scrutinising the work of foreign ministers for a while in, in his chairmanship of the of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. So, you know, it's something that he knows a great deal about. And pretty much all of them have said that they want to increase defence spending so far. So it is on their minds, but it's more sort of shaped towards Tory MPs' preoccupations. All right. Well, we will leave that section there and now turn to some truly shocking news from last week, which is that former Japanese Prime Minister Abe Shinzo was assassinated. What do we know about the attack and what does it mean for Japanese politics? So, Katie, I mean, this was uh, this was truly surreal, shocking news. What is known now that perhaps wasn't when it happened about the attack and the attacker? Yeah, so Abe Shinzo, who resigned as prime minister in 2020 um, on the grounds of ill health, although he was also term limited and would have had to hand over power the following year in any case, was still you know, by far the most towering figure in Japanese politics. And he was out on the campaign trail in just the most ordinary of circumstances on Friday morning, the 8th of July. He was delivering a stump speech for a local candidate in the city of Nara, you know, standing in a in a traffic island outside a station with perhaps a couple of dozen people standing watching. And you can actually see on the footage from that speech a, a man standing behind him, slim man with a, a grey t-shirt, glasses and a bag slung across his body just walks right up behind him, lifts an improvised shotgun that was essentially two metal pipes bound together with black tape and, and a trigger device and fires twice at very close range. Abe was treated in the streets. Um, his aides attempted to resuscitate him and he was airlifted to hospital where doctors performed repeated blood transfusions. But one of the bullets had severed an artery and they were unable to, to save him and he was pronounced dead later that evening. In terms of what we know about the motivation for the attack, the gunman was arrested at the scene. Abe's security detail tackled him. He is said by the police to have confessed to the killing. He's been identified as a 41-year-old local man called Yamagami Tetsuya. The explanation that he has given to police, according to Japanese media reports, is that he believed Abe was linked to the Japanese branch of the Unification Church. Listeners may know that that better by the, the colloquial term that's sometimes given to its members, the Moonies. Yamagami is said to have believed that his mother was a member of the church, that she made a huge donation to the organization and later went bankrupt and that he believed Abe was linked to the church. So that was why he had sought to kill him. The Japanese branch of the church has confirmed that Yamagami's mother was a member, at least until two months ago, but he has denied that Abe had any formal links to the church. So it does not seem at this stage that the attack was politically motivated, but obviously the, the loss of a figure of Abe's stature will have huge political ramifications in Japan. We have a piece from Jeremy from 
a little while ago um, that we'll put in the show notes. But broadly speaking, I think many say that his legacy was a more, let's say, proactive approach to the Japanese economy and, and changing Japan's position on the world stage. You can't leave out of his legacy that, you know, he had a nationalistic bent that offended many in, in the region, including some in his own country. But I mean, if that's the past, and you can take issue with any of what I just said, um, if that's the past, what do you think the future ramifications of this attack in Japanese politics will be? Because it's not as though, I mean, Japan has extremely strict gun laws. I, I hope and think that this is not going to inspire like a, a series of other political assassinations in Japan. But as you say, the ramifications will be felt. Firstly, we, we will we will see um, a, an investigation into the security range arrangements around Abe. You know that this man could walk right up to him in a street and and shoot him, albeit with an improvised weapon at, at close range. The the Nara police have said that they will examine exactly what happened. It is absolutely normal that Japanese politicians engage in this kind of retail politics, you know, meeting with voters and delivering stump speeches like this. But the normal practice was that they would um, deliver speeches from on top of a campaign vehicle. Whereas in, in this case, it, it seems like it was quite a last minute decision uh, to travel there. And Abe is just standing on a, a, a very small platform. So he's pretty much at, at ground level as he's delivering the speech. There are also questions about how the gunman was able to, to fire twice. You know, you, you here in the footage, you know, it, a gap of several seconds between the first shot and the second shot. I think, you know, other security detail around the world would, would look at that and wonder why he was not tackled more quickly. I think in terms of his legacy, number one, what he, what he will be remembered as in terms of the, the, the domestic political side of this was bringing stability. You know, before Abe came to power, there was what has been described as a revolving door of Japanese prime ministers who would serve, you know, one year, two year. In, in fact, Abe was one of them. He he first served as prime minister um, for just a little over a year from 2006 to 2007. So that he was then able to stay in power for, for so long, you know, eight years, Japan's longest serving modern leader did deliver a degree of stability to domestic politics. He also did make economics a, a focus. He is known for his what's called the abenomics um, approach to the economy, which was effectively trying to jumpstart the very seriously stagnating economy, which, you know, had some success, although, you know, when he left office, Japan still had very significant problems with rising inequality, its, its aging population. So it was, it was a partial success. I think on the international and on the, and on the regional front, he will be remembered for really returning Japan to a much more prominent role on the international stage. He was the original architect of the Quad Grouping, which has now become you know, quite visible, the, the grouping that is Japan, Australia, India, and the United States. Um, he was the first to suggest that. Um, he was also the first to come up with the free and open Indo-Pacific formula, which those of us who, who follow US foreign policy are now extremely familiar with. So he, you know, he really paid a lot of attention um, to Japan's role on the international stage and to China's rise. Where his legacy is more complex and will be more contested is that he was certainly a nationalist. He was the grandson of a former Japanese prime minister who was accused of war crimes during the Second World War, although not convicted. And Abe's biggest political ambition was to revise the Japanese constitution, which was introduced in 1947 during the US occupation 
after the end of the war and which includes a clause that forever renounced the nation's right to wage war or to maintain land, sea or air forces and, and what are described as other war potential. Now, Abe and actually his grandfather also really desperately wanted to reform that clause. Um, he said it was necessary to make Japan a, a quote, normal country. But he was never, despite his long tenure, able to muster the, the political and popular support required to do that. The irony is that after his death, which came just two days before these elections for the upper house of parliament, his party, the LDP, does now have, um, with its coalition parties, a two-thirds majority in both houses of parliament to be able to amend the constitution and fulfil that decades-long dream but without a figure of his stature, it's going to be very difficult to generate the, the public support to do so. It would still need to be approved in a nationwide referendum. And exit polls on Sunday, the day of the election, found that overwhelmingly 45% of voters said the government should focus on the Japanese economy. Just 5% said they should focus on amending the constitution, which is a divisive issue. So the numbers in parliament are now there to achieve this. But without a figure of Abe's stature, it may be very difficult to turn that situation around. And I also just want to be clear, and this is not, I mean, he had a, a complex legacy. I don't mean to paint him as a villain, but he was during his time as a politician accused of, and I, in my opinion, fairly of revision of history and of glossing over Japanese atrocities during World War II. I mean, we should acknowledge that as well. Yeah, we should be really clear that his, you know, people use terms like problematic, troubling, you know, it was just wrong. You know, his approach to, you know, what were terrible atrocities carried out by Japanese troops in China with events like the Nanjing massacre, where, you know, China claims that 300,000 people were killed. There was mass rape of women in, in that city. You know, Abe really did try to play down the memory of those atrocities. It is fair to say that he did try to to rewrite and to, to gloss over and to, and to whitewash the memory of those atrocities. So, you know, we should be clear that they, that is part of who he was. It was part of his worldview and it was demonstrated in, in his actions. You know, the, the, the year after he returned to power, um, so he, he came back to power as prime minister in 2012, the next year he visited the Yasukuni Shrine in Tokyo, which remembers a number of Japanese war criminals among the war dead. There was a tremendous international outcry after that. And so he didn't visit in person again for the duration of his tenure, but he did continue to send ritual offerings to the shrine. And he visited again days after he stepped down as prime minister. So this is a part of who he was. And, you know, it was telling. Well, you know, Chinese officials at a senior level sent condolences, expressed their shock and, and talked about the efforts that he had made, certainly during the early part of his tenure, to improve relations with China. But Chinese netizens on, on social media, you know, a number of them were posting champagne emojis and congratulating his, his assassin. So, you know, he, he was a man with um, a truly objectionable approach to the Japanese wartime past. And, you know, for all of his many achievements in terms of, of the, the, the present and his efforts to, to secure a much more international future for Japan and, and to, to return Japan to, to prominence on, on the international stage. You know, we should not forget the approach that he took to the past. 
I just have one question for Anoush before we move on, which is, I think, even with that complex legacy, I think there was a genuine outpouring of grief from from U.S. officials. Obviously, the United States has its own history with Japan, but in its more short-term history, you know, this was a long-serving leader. This was, as Katie says, somebody who took a really um, quite forward approach to Japan's interactions with the world, in particular the United States, from both parties. I'm curious, what was the reaction in in Britain from British politicians? You know, I am trying to remember exactly what day this happened because, I mean, I think it must have directly coincided with the fall of Boris Johnson. I mean, he did come out and say he was he was appalled, obviously, at the shooting and that Britain stands with Japan. And of course, Japan's quite quite important, really, among particularly the British politicians who the spotlight uh, is on at the moment because it's part of that story that Britain tells itself about its opportunities post-Brexit. Liz Truss secured that trade deal with Japan. You know, obviously, there's been a lot of cynicism among some commentators who, you know, didn't think that it would be good for, for the UK's prospects to, to leave the EU about, you know, how fruitful these trade deals actually are. But it holds a symbolic place in how Britain sort of imagines itself in its, in its new post-Brexit age. So, it is significant, but we just haven't seen very much discourse about it here because our politicians have been so distracted. Boris Johnson in particular, who you'd expect to hear more from in, in more normal domestic times. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Ian McEwan on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale. Might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? That the creature lies stranded on the beach, as whales sometimes are? That the guts and blubber and ribcage are on display? A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical, technical and quite, well, obvious and Maria Wilczek on Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, Katie also has a piece on Abishenzo that we will put in the show notes. We encourage you to read that after listening to the following, a section that we stole from Anusha's podcast that we like to call You Ask Us. Great work, Katie. So um, a listener wanted to know what to watch I for. I can't believe I actually failed to do that. For the, for the <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I'm sorry. the one trying to force our guests I, to do it. I, I thought you were boycotting it because <laughs> it was such a such a flagrant appropriation. All right, we're going to leave this in. We want the world <laughs> listeners to know the resentment that we as younger sibling here are facing. Now, our listener wanted to know what to watch for in Biden's visit with interim prime minister Yair Lapid in Israel. So first, I would say, if you're interested in this, I encourage you to go back and listen to our interview episode from Monday, which is with Amir Tibon, um, who is an Israeli journalist who speaks more about like the presence of present politics in Israel and what you know this inter- interim prime minister can cannot do and what it means, what it doesn't. From Biden, I would watch for, so reportedly, they are going to have this Jerusalem declaration signed Thursday, the day that this goes out, which will sort of establish... Uh, you know, a framework for the United States and Israel. Reportedly, it's going to say that they hope that they, they don't want Iran to ever have a nuclear weapon, which I don't know how you prevent that if the United States does not reenter the nuclear agreement. It is notable that Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, told reporters ahead of this meeting that Biden would reassert that the two-state solution is the only solution for Israel, for Israelis and Palestinians as the United States sees it, but is not going to try to restart peace talks. It's also notable that the family of the Palestinian-American journalist uh, Shireen Abu Akla, who was killed by a bullet that the United States believes was from Israeli Defense Forces, although the U.S. said that they couldn't say it was intentional, which her family objected to. Anyway, her family asked for a meeting during this visit. Apparently, according to Sullivan, they will receive an invitation to visit Washington. It's quite Notable, I think, that the focus of this visit is really not on Palestinians. It is instead on Israel and the region. So Israel and Iran and, you know, Israel. And I'm sure that there will be much made of Biden going from Israel to Saudi Arabia. He has said that the reason that he's taking this trip is not for energy prices with Saudi Arabia, but rather 
to further normalize relations between Jerusalem and Riyadh. I mean, I think what's notable and what should be watched is that in a lot of ways, this is a continuation of Trump's foreign policy toward toward Israel. I mean, Biden's gone back to saying that the two-state solution is the only way, which Trump sort of dropped. But a focus on turning de facto normalization with other countries in the region. Um, obviously, you saw into GRA normalization, which you saw some of with the Abraham Accords under Trump. Perhaps you'll not see that with Saudi Arabia. A focus on that and instead of whether there will ever be peace between Israelis, Jewish Israelis and Palestinians. You know, that's that's a, a transition that I, I don't think we're going to see reversed on this visit. Emily, can I ask, he's traveling on from there to Saudi Arabia, and he had said on the campaign trail that the Saudi crown, that the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, should be treated like a pariah after the murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Is this a shift away from that? And could he suffer politically for for what seems to be quite an abrupt turnaround? Or you know, how, how do you reconcile this visit yeah, with those yeah. statements? I guess I don't see it as a shift so much as, as it is a continuation of U.S. foreign policy. Like the shift was actually the moment where people pretended that perhaps they would change relations with Saudi Arabia because of the murder of Khashoggi. And shortly thereafter, by and large, people went back to the way things were already done, which is to try to work closely with Saudi Arabia as as regional partners, in part to counter Iran, in part to work on the war in Yemen, which Saudi is an active participant in. So I think I think that it's more the status quo than it is a shift. And I also think it's it's sort of like Anoush was saying about this for leadership competition. I think the vast majority of voters are going to vote on domestic issues in the midterm elections. To the extent that anybody does vote on foreign policy, I, I think maybe this could hurt him. Like maybe there is some voter who, who votes based on, you know, I want to see a more progressive foreign policy. They can't stomach this. And so they stay home. Like I could see a version of that person before I can imagine somebody who is upset about gas prices, but is so thrilled that Biden's maintaining the status quo in the Middle East. Right. Like, I, I just don't I, I don't know who would change their vote in support of the Democrats because of this visit. I suppose I could imagine somebody who would stay home because of it. But we should remember that Americans, as with many other voters in the world, vote for primarily domestic reasons. And I have a short piece on this that I will also put in. That's right. The show notes. Thank you to all of you who sent in your questions. Listeners, you can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday for an interview with Ganeshan Wignaraja on the political and economic crisis in Sri Lanka. A huge thank you to Anoush for joining us today. Anoush, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I loved it. I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, there is a great chance that you were already listening to the Made New Statesman Politics podcast. But if, if somehow you have not yet done that, we really do encourage you to tune in. You know what's coming next. That's right. We're going to ask you to please rate us five stars and leave us a good review. It really does help. Our producer has been Mae Robson. Thank you for listening. And until next time. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson. 
for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance is completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.